This is presentation number two in my series on the problem of pluralism, and its title is Christian Faith and Other Faiths, and the passage with which we work is the passage that's just been read to us. Thank you, Jonathan. You'll remember that yesterday I was analyzing pluralism as a Western ideology, the product, actually, of disillusionment with systems of all sorts, including Christian orthodoxy, the product as well of the alienation of modern Western community, which it is thought that pluralism as a cultural style will cure. Actually, it's a recipe, I think, for more alienation. The effect of a pluralist culture is to set more people at each other's throats than was the case previously. But be that as it may, this is what pluralism, how pluralism seeks itself and what pluralism thinks it will accomplish. Remember me saying the only value that pluralism recognizes is individual freedom, which it is thought will make for happiness the more you have of it. And I started your minds going, at least I hope I did, by saying something about the fact that there's two dimensions to freedom. There's freedom from evil things and restrictive things, something about which we can usually agree. And then there's the freedom to which that paves the way, namely freedom for the good things which were out of your reach previously. And that's where the divisions come and where people part company. In the pluralist culture, human rights are central. Um, the business of government, you remember me saying, is seen as the safeguarding of everybody's freedom. And uh, that's the central human right, which all specific rights really are subsumed under. The government has no business enforcing anything as truth and wi or wisdom or morality. Uh, uh, in other words, no business to enforce anything as having the uh, category of obligation, ought, attaching to it. You ought to believe this. You ought to do this. Uh, you ought to uh, look at life this way or whatever. It's not the business of the government, say the pluralists, to teach anything that's obligatory or that sounds obligatory. What they are to do is to maintain plurality uh, just as fully as they can, leaving everyone, you see, to go their own chosen way. Well, we know, as Christians that fallen human nature is not capable of choosing any path that leads to happiness. All paths that are actually chosen by sinful human beings 
lead to disillusionment more or less. Uh, we know further that if people are encouraged to be egocentric, as if that were a virtue, and to um, set themselves against community around and say, now I live my life, I do things my way, that's a kind of implicit defiance of everything that's going on around, well, what happens is a compound of pride and misery and cosmic resentment. That's the way it goes. But pluralism as an ideology doesn't acknowledge this. Pluralists as uh, social theorists are blind to it. And so what I think I see actually happening around us in Western society, both sides of the Atlantic, is that the pluralism in our culture is producing more misery than was there before. However, one thing that we have to face up to is that there is a Christian, or shall I say, an in-church version of uh, pluralism. Uh, that's what we're up against in a very direct way as a company of Christian people and leaders. It calls itself liberalism. Note my words. I'm not saying that everybody who calls themselves liberal uh, is pluralist in this way, though a great number are. What I am saying is that every pluralist will call him or herself a liberal. And uh, liberalism, as a stream of thought and influence in the church, though it's bankrupt, actually, in terms of theology, and it really is, is constantly gaining strength by absorbing whatever is uppermost in the culture, and just as it absorbed evolution and evolutionism in the, 19th, at the end of the 19th century, so it's absorbed pluralism from the secular culture during this last generation. According to the principle that I remember stating yesterday, that the world has the wisdom and the church must, be always, must always be playing catch-up. And you remember my saying that, I guess. Well, that's pluralism as, uh, what shall I call it, a going concern at the turn of the 20th century. I began to make an assessment of the Christian version of pluralism, but uh, the clock was beating me, and I don't think it was a very good assessment. Let me, therefore, focus the three points that I was trying to make. I think they got mixed up with each other, to be perfectly honest. Um, Christian pluralism first reflects a false modesty. And the pluralists kid themselves at this point. They think they are being very humble in allowing that you can't be absolutely certain of any formulations of faith you can't be absolutely certain that any question in religion or life has been finally solved. Every position held now should be regarded as provisional, 
And does relative, relative not only to what surrounds it at the moment, which probably, if you studied a bit more, you'd realize called for, calls for its adjustment, but relative to what's going to appear tomorrow, you constantly have to be reassessing and adjusting, and uh, you mustn't expect that uh, Christian doctrine will be stable from one generation to another. Well, we've had plenty of talk about specific instances of that today, and so I don't need to go into it at length now. But the, the one point that I'm making about it is that though, as I said, the liberals kid themselves that in taking this attitude they are being very modest, the truth is that in taking this attitude they are being very arrogant. They are being very arrogant in relation to the Bible, which offers us definite truth. Uh, they are declining to accept that offer, it, declining, in other words, to take the word of God seriously. That's arrogance in one form. And they are assuming superiority to those of their brothers in the church who actually do take the Bible seriously and so regard Bible doctrines, Bible formulations as in a real sense definitive. Uh, I spoke about um, relativism a moment ago. I will now say that these people, by contrast with the relativists, are absolutists. You and I are absolutists. When the Bible speaks clearly and unambiguously, well, we've no argument with us with it. That's the absolute truth of God to which we submit. But um, the liberals, um, one has to say, uh, exhibit a thinly veiled contempt for all of that. They think that we're absurdly naive to do anything like that, and that they themselves are a great deal more humble in not doing it. But as I said, there's arrogance, to, uh, real arrogance towards Bible-believing Christians at the heart of it, and that's pretty transparent. We've all experienced it, I suppose. Um, when I was very young, they taught me the riddle, how do you make a Maltese cross? Answer, you step on his toe. How do, you make a, how do you make a liberal cross? Uh, by telling him the truth, that what his attitude involves unfaithfulness to Christ, unfaithfulness to the gospel, and unfaithfulness to the church's mission in the world. Tell him that and see what he says. And you will find that underneath the show of modesty there is a great deal of arrogance. And uh, no doubt... That any liberal in this room would uh, tell me afterwards that I am very arrogant to be accusing liberals of arrogance. You can't win. So off we, on we go to the next point. Um, Christian, Christian pluralism, which reflects this false modesty, also expresses a false charity. Um, you know, of course, that in discussing the doctrine of final salvation these days, the pundits regularly distinguish between three positions. 
the one they call exclusivism, which says there must be conscious faith in a known Christ uh, for salvation. There's the position called inclusivism, which says uh, people who are striving after what's good but who uh, don't know about Christ may nonetheless, some of them will, wake up in heaven and find that they've been saved by Christ even though they never knew of him. And there's the pluralist position, which usually expresses itself as universalism. Whatever people's view of reality, whatever their belief or misbelief about God, whatever their behavior or misbehavior in life, we shall all end up in heaven. That will be the triumph of the grace of God. And the pluralists, the universalists, believe themselves to be much more charitable than the rest of us in allowing everybody in in this way. And I have to say, I think that that... Uh, charity is a false charity not only does it part company with the scriptures but what it really masks is a pride in having so much goodwill to so many people again if there's a liberal here I know I shall hear about that after I finish talking but that's how it appears to me as I talk with these folk and then thirdly uh, this is the bottom line Christian pluralism thus appears as a false faith. Um, what do I mean when I say faith? I'm not using the word here in the full biblical sense. I mean by faith what is usually signified by faith in interreligious discussion. That is, a system of belief and behavior that is oriented to what is viewed as the ultimate value and the ultimate in the, the ultimate of human desire. Uh, the Bible knows all about that. The Bible presents it in the concrete form of idolatry, where it's not simply that you are believing in uh, gods who are no gods but that you are seeking to manipulate them in order to get from them what you want. That's the essence of idolatry in Scripture. And that's why Paul, in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, is able to say, quite simply, covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is a matter of wanting something, and then you look around for means of getting it, and manipulating false gods is one of those means. Getting them, you see, to dance to your tune. Well, pluralism, I think, must be rated a false faith and a form of idolatry. Now, it takes different forms. And tonight I'm going to talk to you about two of them. One that of which we've already heard in the 17th chapter of Acts, Athenian pluralism in the first century. 
according to the scriptures. And then I shall say something. I'm afraid it will sound rather dreary, but I can't help that. It's dreary subject matter about Western pluralism in the 21st century uh, in the churches. But this is Athenian pluralism in the city in the first century. Uh, what was it? Well, it was a philosophical sort of pluralism, uh, though it had a religious dimension. Um, Athens, as I'm sure we know, really was the intellectual center of the world in those days, corresponding to, um, well, Brits would say Oxford and Cambridge, and Americans would say Harvard and Yale. Um, and uh, Athens, in terms of its own history, had been the cradle of talk about and ventures for freedom, the magic word, well, it certainly wasn't freedom in Christ that they were after. It wasn't even freedom for their own slaves. But that was the Athenian cultural heritage. And the pluralism of Athens in the first century, as we see from Luke's narrative, took the form, well, the double form, of patriotic polytheism on the one hand, and persistent philosophy on the other. The patriotic polytheism started with the fact that everybody in Athens was expected to pay lip service to the goddess Athena, who had set the city going. Uh, this was the civic religion, rather like the state religion of Caesar in the Roman Empire, um, uh, in the rest of the Roman Empire, perhaps I ought to say. And then, within, under that umbrella, so to speak, of everybody acknowledging Athena, um, Athenians fanned out worshipping different gods in different, different uh, temples dedicated to them according to the particular needs that they had. For the gods of the Athenian polytheistic system like actually the gods of every polytheistic system that the world has ever seen, they're actually nature deities, each of whom is in charge of a particular bit of the cosmos surrounding. Um, Poseidon, for instance, was the Greek god of the sea. Demeter was the uh, Greek goddess of the harvest. Um, Dionysius was the Greek god of wine and so on. And uh, if you wanted benefit within the, what shall I say, the, um, uh, the, the cosmic bailiwick uh, of one god rather than another, well, you went to that god's temple and you worshipped appropriately. You gave a gift and thereby sought to secure the god or goddess's goodwill um, to, so that they would give you whatever you wanted in their particular department. And that was going on, and Luke makes a point of telling us so, so that we shall understand what kind of Amelia this was that Paul had gone into. Um, verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. And then verse 22, um, 
Paul said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. I, as I passed, along, I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, notice the plural, many objects. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, and so on. Well, that's the Melia. Paul is speaking within a culture of polytheism. But it has in it also this element of philosophy. What is philosophy? Well, as the Greeks understood philosophy, it uh, was literally the love of wisdom. That's what the word means fill in, in terms of its origin. And the wisdom, which uh, a philosopher loves, was understood by everybody as wisdom about life, understanding life, and so knowing how to live it. Uh, in that regard, the um, Greek view of wisdom is a secular counterpart to the Bible view of wisdom, for which the fear of the Lord is the beginning. But then, it's like uh, Athenian wisdom, it's about understanding, well, God's world, that's the Bible idea, and so being able to live godly, because you... Uh, you, you, you know, in broad terms, what's going on around you. Well, uh, Luke makes the point of telling us, uh, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him. These were the two main schools of philosophical thought in Athens at the time. And um, some of them said... Uh, Paul seems to be a preacher, this man Paul seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. He's talking about Jesus and anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection, and they thought it was the name of a goddess. Well, philosophers were quite used to religious teachers coming along and talking about uh, additional gods over and above those whom the Athenians worshipped already. Uh, they didn't... Uh, sponsor polytheism, but they didn't disagree with it either. So here you've got this, uh, this, this, this Athenian milia, and what we are confronted with in this passage is Paul's address to the Areopagus that was the um, top cultural debating chamber in Athens. It hadn't got legislative power, but it had enormous prestige. It corresponded, I suppose, to the House of Lords in the days when uh, the House of Lords had universal respect, which, well, it has some respect still, but I don't think it's universal, is it? Uh, I live 6,000 miles away, but I seem to hear murmurs that... Um, some think the House of Lords has had its day. Anyway, nobody thought that Areop the Areopagus had had its day. Um, the Areopagus is a top cultural assembly, and uh, when Paul was asked to address it, well, it was Paul talking to top people in the top debating chamber. And he's asked to answer a question. Uh, it's there in verse 19. May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing strange things to our ears. We want to know what it's all about. Uh, Luke tells us the story in brief compass. 
uh, he tells us how Paul started to make a speech. Um, the speech, of course, is foreshortened. Um, we don't get it at length. You can read through Paul's uh, speech in two minutes, but I'm sure he was talking for longer than that. Luke is just giving us the highlights. However, before he'd finished, he was howled down. You have to realize that. Uh, when they heard the reference to the resurrection of the one who is to be the judge, uh, the resurrection of the dead, verse 32, some mocked. And what that means is that quite literally they um, shouted out, they booed him, they yelled, yeah, rubbish, nonsense, stop it, shut up, all that kind of thing, so that he couldn't go on speaking. That's the scene. And that was why those who'd become interested in what he was saying had to say to him, uh, second half of verse 32, we'll hear you again about this. Paul had to go out, but some went after him, and they listened to the rest of what he had to say, and they believed. So Luke tells us in verse 34, some exegetes have talked as if the Athenian mission was a failure. What Paul is telling us is that despite the reaction of uh, a substantial segment of the Areopagus, it was a success. Paul left behind him a church in Athens. may not have been a very large one, but it was a church. Wherever the gospel goes, it triumphs. That's the picture of things in uh, the book of Acts. Um, now, for sound interpretation of what Paul says, you've got to remember, um, this isn't the only speech that Luke records in Acts, and all the previous speeches, speeches to Jewish audi audiences for evangelistic purposes in the first uh, 11 chapters of the book, and then... Uh, Paul's previous speech at Lystra to, to a Gentile audience in chapter 14, all of that is assumed. And, well, it's like, like in any book, you know, what comes early in the book is assumed by what, in, in, with what comes later in the book. So a lot of interpreters have pulled this chapter out of Acts as if there was nothing, nothing that has gone before to... Uh, act as a foundation for understanding this speech, and then they've misunderstood it, as if Paul at Athens was trying to play the philosopher, nothing of the sort. He was uh, starting at the beginning telling people about the true God, teaching them, if you like, basic theism. That's where you have to start if you're going to teach people, if you're going to explain to people the gospel. Um, Luke, he's a historian, but he's doing here what uh, Greek historians regularly did, convention. Um, he is using speeches, set-piece set speeches, which he records in summary form, to point up the ideas that were operative in the events that he records. 
Uh, Thucydides does it, Polybius does it, they all did it. It was one of the conventions of Greek history writing. You put the ideas into set-piece speeches. Um, so he summarizes what Paul said, and it becomes one of the set-piece speeches in the book, stating the terms of the gospel, whose progress and triumph Luke, as a historian, is concerned to record. And he has to summarize, because he's writing, as um, I am sure, that uh, Matthew, Mark, and, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John were also writing to a set word length. This is something that not all New Testament scholars seem to be aware of. Um, at this time, uh, the paper trade produced codices, that is, um, sets of papers bound together. There was a short codex and a long codex, and books were made by booksellers, publishers, buying these codices from the people who manufactured them, and then getting slaves in the back room to copy out the book into the codex, which then went into the shop for sale. That's how the first century book trade actually operated. And Mark is the length of a short codex, and uh, Matthew and John and uh, Luke's two volumes are all the, the length, um, substantially, of a, of a long codex. Well, anyway, when you write to a word length, you just have to decide what you're going to leave out. And Luke is obviously um, writing to a word length. He's made his decisions. He, puts, he hits the high spots. He puts in the things that are really important. So that's what you've got here in this narrative. And now, within this, uh, this frame of... Um, can I say it, understanding the background, look at what it was that Paul told them when he was given the opportunity to say his piece. You remember last night um, I summarized the Christian message, which all of which I claimed is gospel, belongs to the gospel, in terms of key words, and the first was God, and the second was man, and the third was history, and the fourth was salvation, and the fifth was fellowship, and the sixth was heaven. What we see here is that Paul was interrupted when he'd uh, said his piece on the first three. He wasn't able to get to four, five, and six. Salvation, fellowship, heaven. Um, and it's important to realize that uh, he wasn't allowed to finish. But the order that he was following was the order that uh, uh, I presented to you, and uh, I got it from the New Testament. It's not original to me. Don't think it. Paul starts with God. Well, yes, that's where any statement of the gospel has to start. And what does he tell them about God? Well, he tells them, God, the God who is unknown to you at the moment, the God whom you admit that you don't know anything about, this God is the creator. You owe your very existence to him. And he is the Lord. He is omnipotent. 
He's sovereign. He is God in charge in this world, God in whose hands everything and everybody really is. Um, he is infinite. He doesn't dwell in temples. You can't localize him anywhere. He is the unbounded God who is present everywhere. And he is the self-sustaining God. Uh, do you know the word which we use in the trade, aseity? A-S-E-I-T-Y. It's a good word. It's the technical term for the quality of sustaining your own life from within. Uh, it comes from two Latin words, a-se, meaning from oneself. None of us has the quality of aseity built into, uh, into, what, into ourselves. We are dependent on God and our bodies wear out and we run down and so on. But uh, God is self-sustaining. He never changes. He never runs out of energy. Second law of thermodynamics doesn't apply to him. Um, and uh, Paul says he isn't served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything because he keeps going by his own intrinsic life and energy. And he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything that we have. Verse 25. So he is the only one of his kind. He is unique. But he needs to be known because he is the most important being there is. And Paul's implication is that it was distinctly a sad thing and a bad thing even that you were ignorant of him. Uh, Paul is going on to dig them in the ribs a bit about that because he's going to tell them one of your own poets understood perfectly well and said, for we are his offspring. Why didn't all of you know that? Why didn't all of you take that to heart? Well, um, I'm running ahead of myself. This is what Paul tells them about God. Now, what, what, does he, what, he, what does he tell them about man? Well, that's verses 26 to 28. And it's four points on, which we, on none of which can we dwell. But he sets before them the unity of the human race, um, which, which truth, if carried through, knocks racism on the head completely, and the Athenians were racists. They were sure they were better than anyone else. No, says Paul, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Verse 26. And he moves on from the dignity of, of the, sorry, the unity of the human race to the dignity of the human being. Um, that's the point, or at least it's part of the point, of the quote from the poet Eratus in verse uh, 28, for we are indeed his offspring. We are the offspring of God. And that being so, verse 29, we oughtn't to think that the 
divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. No, no, no. We are God's offspring, and we should think of ourselves as reflecting his reality. Uh, We shouldn't take it on ourselves to invent notions of what he's like. This is Paul's sidekick at the whole method of idolatrous polytheism. So, there you got it. The dignity of the human being, we we are God's offspring. He made us. That does give us dignity gives us responsibility too but then then thirdly he's already told them actually about the sovereignty of God over human affairs that's humbling because it means that the Athenians and Paul and everybody everywhere we're all in God's hands and he disposes of us the way that he wills Paul said this in verse 26 uh, God detailed second half God determined allotted periods. That's a way of saying God planned history. And God determined the boundaries of their dwelling places. That's a way of saying God planned human geography. And it's all his doing. We are in his hands at every point, every moment, whoever we are. And then within that frame, Paul talks about the purpose of human life. And that's verse 27. What were we made for? Well, we were made, says Paul, that we should seek God. All mankind was made to seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. It's a picturesque way of saying that the order God intends is seeking and then finding Paul doesn't at this stage say how. He's only saying that they'll be seeking first. There won't be any finding unless they're seeking. We we should seek. Then we may hope to find and thus to know God. Uh, That's what we were made for. And that's the truly human way to live. Nothing less. And then he started telling them about history. This is the third theme in my, of my six. He's already said that God determined allotted periods, verse 26. Now he says, verses 30 and 31, that God has moved in the following way. There was a period in which God showed forbearance, um, towards man's ignorance of him, that is, his disregard of the inklings focused by the poets and others to the effect that we are God's offspring. Um, But that's ended. That's a period that has finished. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God commands and expects those whom he's made to acknowledge that he has a right to command them and therefore to jump to and obey his command. God commands all people everywhere to do what? Well, to repent. Right about turn, quick march, change your thinking in order to change your living, change your mind in order to change your way. Repentance is a very radical word, as we all know. 
God commands all men everywhere to repent, says Paul. Uh, and then he explains why. Because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, a particular person. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Well, when Paul speaks of the historical resurrection of the world's future judge, um, the Areopagites, uh, they feel they've had enough. This is utter nonsense, and we're not going to listen to any more of it. Why did it so upset them? Why did they feel that Paul was um, being so aggressive in the things that he said to them? Well, three reasons. Because he was saying something definite about life, contrary to the Athenian ethos that we spend all our time discussing ideas, new ideas, fresh possibilities. Uh, life is discussion as distinct from action. Paul is telling them that there's something that they now must do. Paul is saying something directional about history, that God is taking history to a point of conclusion when there'll be a judgment. The Greek idea about history, as I expect we all know, is that it went round in circles. And that after a time, after many, many thousand years, the world gets back to the point from which it started. History goes nowhere. And uh, Paul is challenging that. And thirdly, Paul is saying something disruptive of their lifestyle by telling them that they've got to change. Nobody likes being told that they've got to change. But the summons to repent is precisely a call to change. Well, this got under their skin and they howled Paul down. And here I need only comment that when pluralists hear these things said today in the same forthright way in which Paul said them as uh, universal truth, one truth for everybody, and ultimate truth, final truth, uh, truth unchanged and unchanging, they react in similar fashion. Uh, whether they're secularists or whether they are religious pluralists, they say you are being a great deal more definite than you have any right to be. You are being unwarrantably arrogant in your definiteness. They don't see it as faithfulness to God to echo his word faithfully without um, introducing any doubts or uncertainties where the scripture is clear. No, they see it as um, the speaker getting too big for his or her boots. And we've had that, haven't we, brothers and sisters, over and over from our liberal friends. That's what they think about us conservative evangelicals, and sometimes they say it. Well, that's what I wanted us to see in this scripture passage, uh, showing us how pluralism was in the age of the apostles, and indicating to us how pluralism is in any other age.
And that's the perspective that I now bring with me as I ask you for a minute or two to look with me at Western pluralism, the pluralism of the 21st century, the religious pluralism, the Anglican pluralism, which confronts us under the name, under the name of liberal, uh, as liberalism defines itself today. Um, in 1924, when liberalism was defining itself a little bit differently, but not much, um, J. Gresham Machen wrote a book titled Christianity and Liberalism, in which he argued that here, really, you've got two different religions, and the only way to be clear is to distinguish them and contrast them and stop trying to pretend that one is uh, just... Uh, a permissible form of the other. And as I look at our pluralistic liberalism today, I must confess, I think that uh, the Machen perspective remains the only one that brings clarity into the situation and the one which, whatever offense we may give by doing this, we, we do need to adopt. Um, one of my Brother Canadian Evangelicals wrote a book titled uh, Two Religions, One Church. That was his analysis of the Anglican situation in Canada. And Two Religions, One Church is a fair description of what you've got in just about all the Anglican churches of what I call the Old West. Britain, uh, North America, Australasia, South Africa. Well, um, the clock is beating me now, so I have to run. I'm going to answer quickly two questions. Uh, answer them. I shall answer them too quickly, actually, just dropping a few hints. I think it's better I do that than that I simply stop now, but uh, don't be frightened, friends. I hope to get, get to, an, uh, to my conclusion in about five minutes. First question, where does it come from, this Western pluralism? Short answer is it comes from five centuries of trends of thought that shrink God, trends of thought that inflate man, and trends of thought that keep adjusting Anglicanism to the secular thinking of the Western world to fit, in other words, the state of the culture at the time. The God-shrinking aspect of the matter can be traced through from the Reformation to the 20th century. In the Reformation, the Bible view of God came back strong and vivid and people's minds were possessed by the thought of God transcendent, God active, God present, God searching us, God holy, God merciful, God really round every corner and God in every situation. But uh, the people called Arminians began to deny that he controls human actions and then the people called deists 
began to deny that he was involved in the life of this world at all, and uh, people like the philosopher Kant came up with a denial that he could possibly use language to tell us things, and uh, people like um, uh, Marx and Darwin and Freud, um, all of whom were atheists by the end of their life anyway, Marx and Freud were Jewish atheists, uh, Darwin was a Christian atheist, but atheism is atheism when you get right down to it, uh, and <coughs> they, they, they didn't project atheism, they simply said, if anybody in this modern world wants to practice religion, well, let it be a private hobby, don't let it be anything more. I don't buy it, and I don't think society ought to buy it, but, um, well, we don't want to stop people having their hobbies, do we? And you see, put together all these attitudes, one following the other, and you got the 21st century sense widespread in the West of the irrelevance of God to life. Can you wonder? And then there are the, there are the trends of thought that have inflated man, um, putting man again and again in the place of God, glorified human mastery over the natural order, uh, the Enlightenment glorified human reason, um, this is 18th and 19th century. Human reason would be able to solve all problems, uh, shake off uh, the church's teaching and all other dogmas of the past and let reason do its stuff and the world will become a perfect world very shortly. And modernity, in disillusionment actually from a lot of this, but nonetheless with man and, uh, and human thought firmly at the center of everything, modernity went humanist and uh, began to develop patterns of uh, life according to which, really, uh, people were being looked to, to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps into all kinds of excellence. Of course, it's, been as, it's proved as hollow as can be, because fallen human nature can't do that. But that's the way that the process of thought, which I describe as inflating man, has gone. And the Anglican adjustment, well, in the 17th century, they called for clarity, and they began to say, Christianity is really morality, as distinct from complex dog the complexities of dogma. And in the 18th century, they started calling for conciseness, and indeed, at the end of the 17th century with John Locke, they began to say, uh, Christianity must be slimmed, only simple the simple essentials of Christianity should uh, occupy our attention. And then in the 19th century, uh, Anglican theo uh, Anglicanism was required to absorb the, pr the practice of criticism, biblical criticism and doctrinal criticism. And here you could say uh, what was uppermost in people's minds was the need to question everything and not be naive and believe what hadn't been fully proved. 
And then in the 20th century, well, the cry was for conformity to the world. Um, Anglicanism must reconfigure itself in light of what is uppermost in today's culture. And at various times in the 19th, in the 20th century, the culture changed, and we've brought all that into the 21st century, and it surrounds us today. Of course, there are a hundred different ways of reconfiguring Anglican theology. Once uh, it is said, the individual theologian with his own perception of what's going on in the culture is the man to do it. There's no objective standard. What the theologian thinks and says three times to you is right, but different theologians say different things. And so what you, you, you've got what... Um, Eeyore in Winnie the Pooh calls a confused noise. We've made, <laughs> made reference to that already. Well, now, how does, I ask another question, how does Western pluralism, as we have it in uh, our own Anglican fellowship uh, at this present time, how does it work? Um, uh, it helps, I think, to realize that. It works by invoking two principles. One is that the interpretation of the Bible may be infinitely various, and we must tolerate, without limits, the different interpretations of Scripture that different people come up with because no one is in a position to correct anybody else. Uh, that's part of the gabble of New Westminster, uh, you may well imagine. But the answer to that is, as I think I said yesterday, that the Bible interprets itself from within, and there's only one interpretation that is fully coherent, and that is the result of letting Scripture illuminate Scripture by its own internal cross-references. And that is the interpretation of Scripture which you find in all the evangelical theological textbooks that have been written since Calvin's Institutes. Oh, I know that a lot of them have been written by people who don't call themselves Calvinists, um, Methodists and uh, uh, Pentecostals. They have written textbooks. But... All the textbooks written by people who believe that the Bible is the word of God and is to be interpreted this way have come up with substantially the same doctrines. Wish I had time to prove that to you. I once did a little bit of research to verify it, and it's very, very striking. If you allow the Bible to interpret itself, you come up with the same, the same view of just about everything, whatever you call yourself. But the liberals think that any kind of impressionistic biblical interpretation, taking a text here, text there, reading into it, whatever you want to read into it, that is acknowledging the authority of Scripture, and we must tolerate each other's interpretations and settle for an ultimate plurality of interpretations. Well, we've got to challenge that. That is one of the principles, as I said, in terms of which they work. Uh, the other principle in terms of which they work is that all religiosity 
is essentially one, essentially a variant of the same thing, essentially a climbing of the same mountain, whether it's the religiosity of uh, an Anglican in uh, an ordinary Anglican church or an evangelical in uh, one of those unusual evangelical Anglican churches or Roman Catholic or uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness or um, whether it's the religiosity of a Muslim or a Hindu or a, Buddha or a, a Sikh or whatever, uh, all religiosity is one and all religious people, uh, all people, that is to say, who think that there's some sort of transcendent dimension to human life, that's the essence of religiosity as the liberals conceive it, they should all regard each other as brothers. Never mind that they have different doctrines, that's neither here nor there. They have the same sense of religion. Well, at that point, we have to say the opposite thing to what we said before. We have to say, no, these different senses of religion, uh, uh, senses of religious reality, do in fact go off in different directions because of their different doctrines. And they are not the same thing. There is in this world Christianity. Depending on special revelation, unique revelation. It's in, in the Bible and it was originally given in the flow of history that culminated in Christ and the apostles. And only the Bible gives it to us. Uh, the rest of the world's religions, the rest of the world's religiosity, is the result of general revelation alas, perverted more or less, and certainly persistent religiosity because human beings were made in such a way that they can't forget. God won't let them forget uh, that there is, in fact, uh, one whom they ought to be worshipping and aren't. The sense of this may be very smudgy, but it's real in every heart. Never take atheism too seriously, friends. The people who say they're atheists want you to believe they're atheists. One of the reasons they're saying it, saying it so emphatically, is because deep down they know it isn't true. Uh, at least that's been my working hypothesis, and I find that it pays off. It's like... <clears throat> um, I'm going to... I'm going to take a risk now in what I say. It's like my working hypothesis in relation to the homosexual folk whom sometimes I'm given opportunity to try and speak to pastorally. Um, they are very insistent that uh, it was good for them to come out. It's good for them to be gay. They don't want to change. They protest too much, and so I know that there's a bad conscience at the heart of it, although they won't face that, and uh, it, isn't always, it isn't a conscious thing half the, most of the time anyway, just a sort of deep-down uneasiness. So they passionately insist that they are a form of human normality. Well, I think we understand the exercise. 
uh, you protest too much about something about which really you are, or it's, it's protest, you protest too much to clear yourself with regard to something about which inside you feel at least uneasy. Again, if there are any gay friends here, um, I sh I'm sure that you will want to say something to me afterwards about that. I say a lot of things at my age, perhaps I'm allowed to do it, which people shake their heads over as soon as I'm out of the door. Well, I shall go on saying them because I believe they're true. I speak as to wise men and women, you judge what I say. Meantime, I tell you that that's how modern re Anglican religious pluralism works. And we need to recognize that and be able to detect it when we meet it. Meantime, even if we think that, uh, if we're made to think that we're being put in the same position as Paul when he was howled down by the Areopagus, we remain on the victory side. How do I know that? The Bible tells me so. The Bible, well, let's start with Luke. Luke's, uh, Luke's narrative in Acts um, tells me that whatever opposition there may be to the messengers of the gospel, the gospel goes forward and wins victories and cannot be stopped. Luke wants us to understand that even in Athens, where the opposition from a Gentile source rang high, ran high, just as in some places uh, where it rang, ran high from Jewish sources, uh, nonetheless the gospel triumphed and a church was left. And you may remember how the book of the Acts ends. Paul is um, you know, under house arrest, living in Rome, uh, but he is able to welcome all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Last phrase in the book of Acts is, no one hindering him. And that's, that, that's, that's Luke's sign-off phrase. You can't stop the gospel. Whatever you do to its messengers, well, we should take that to heart because that is the way it is still. We, the messengers, may have a hard time, but the gospel will go forward because it's God's gospel. And you read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and there you see that though the opposition to the Lord's people and the Lord's truth is horrific, and the horrific visions are horrific in order to make the point that the experience of opposition is horrific, and we, well, goodness, we've had this brought right close to us by Ben Kwashi early this, earlier today, and we shall hear from him again tomorrow. This is the reality. The opposition is horrifically strong. But you know how the book of Revelation ends. Um, I was handed a tract, not a tract, a, le a printed lecture by um, Eric Cuthbertson, and I looked in the back and found that the Church of Ireland has produced a number of, uh, uh, a number of, uh, sm of small publications, and one of them is 42 studies in the book of Revelation 
under the marvelous title, The Lamb Wins. <laughs> Terrific as a title for a set of studies in Revelation. And that's the thought with which I'd leave you, friends. The gospel advances, the lamb wins, whatever happens to us. So face the pluralism with a high heart. It can't sustain itself. Uh, it may do us a great deal of damage before it dies, but die it will. And the last word will be with the Lord. Take courage, friends. Um, we are on the victory side. Amen. Jim, thank you very, very much indeed. I'm going to respond to that by singing uh, 300.